Hey guys, I'm going to ask for the same help this week. If you enjoy the podcast, please take 30 seconds to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. If you drop a review with your Twitter handle, I'll follow and DM you a quick thanks. We're too small for the Americans and too big for the Brazilians. So where do we go? This is Funded, a show where founders who raised millions in venture capital share the gritty side of what it actually took to get that money in the bank. I'm Jason Ye. Not too long ago, I was trying to get my ideas funded. And back in the day, I was a VC listening to founders pitch me for money. Nashville is the home of country music. Wall Street is the hub for global markets. And Silicon Valley is the center of tech and VC, right? Not always, and especially not as much today, according to our guest, Parker Tracy, who grew up in Boston but raised over $40 million almost 5,000 miles away from home in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Most U.S.-based VCs historically haven't invested abroad. Their logic? It's too far to help, it's too different to understand, and overall, too risky. And that put Parker in a Goldilocks situation, meaning he was considered too big for Brazilian VCs and too small for some American VCs. Today's episode is about how he navigated that dynamic to bring on some of the world's most prestigious firms in a killer Series A and B. Parker is one of the biggest risk takers I know. And if you listen to the end, you'll hear how his adventurous side rubbed off on me. But even though he has one of the highest risk tolerances out of anyone I know, my first reaction when we were in grad school and he told me he wanted to start a company in Brazil was, it's already hard enough to start a company here, in a place where we speak the language and our networks are super established. But his instinct was right. Kobli, the fleet management platform he founded, ended up raising millions and now has over 200 employees. And he now speaks Portuguese fluently, which was not the case when he first landed in Brazil. But I remember when I first arrived and like the guy who's trying to help you at the airport with bags, he said this phrase, Iai moleki, which is a very slang way of just like, hey, man, can I help you, right? And I didn't know the, any of those words. And so, I mean, I remember just like the coldness that went into my stomach upon that first. I'm like, I just went over three in the first three words. Yeah, wow. So American uh, starting a company down in Brazil without full fluency. So you're trying to create this company and... At some point, you, you figure out that you need to raise money to really get it going. But when you started Kobli, did you know from the beginning that it was going to be venture-backed? Because I know you've had experience building companies without venture capital. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how you thought about Kobli in the beginning and whether or not venture capital was always going to be part of the plan. I definitely came with a highly biased perspective. My first company, which I started out of university now 15 years ago, is an auto finance company. And it's a company that we basically kind of do better underwriting at the dealership level to enable kind of different types of customers who are typically harder to finance get financed. We compete against banks, credit unions, other finance companies in the United States. And all of the challenge was much more about how to create the debt facilities to create the balance sheet to be a lender, right? Because you have to hold them on your balance sheet until you get really big, then you can securitize them or get them off your balance sheet in some sort of way, but you have to have a lot of scale. And so given the fact that all of my challenge was always historically based around debt, and obviously if you raise debt, your, your cap table stays pretty awesome. I had a huge bias against, against venture capital when it was coming down. I had obviously made a little bit of money from, from, from that company or had, had a little bit of liquidity. And so my idea was I would love to kind of get to big scale without having to raise any money. <laughs> what I quickly realized, though, Kobley's a SaaS company, right? And SaaS is, when, when you buy a contract, it's kind of like buying a bond, right? You're investing today for a series of cash flows for tomorrow. And the faster you grow, the bigger that hole of cash becomes. And that was not immediately obvious to me until we started really kind of figuring out the go-to-market motions and started understanding the, the cash flow implications around those that it became very, very obvious. Like if we want to create a big company very fast, the only reliable way for us to do this is, is to do the venture model. Yeah, I mean, so made that decision in 2018 to start bringing in outside capital. And obviously the rest, is, the rest is history. I think this is like a very interesting part of most conversations that I have with founders, which is like, okay, so at some point you had this realization and it sounds like for you, you were working for a few years before you even 
believe that you needed venture capital, but once that thought entered your mind, and what was it like thinking about raising venture capital? How did you think about learning what to do? And especially as a Brazilian company, there, there had to have been a ton of decisions to make or things to understand where you wanted to raise from, types of investors you wanted to raise from. Can you bring yourself back to like 2018 thinking through well, what is what does raising venture capital mean and some of the thoughts that went into that? So, I mean, obviously it started out with chatting to some of the other Americans who had come down and started companies and raised venture money just because I, I, I need to demystify this, this entire process. It was, it was extremely foreign to me. A, a lot of my biases against it were certainly in the fact that it was foreign and I like doing things that I understand. And this is something I don't understand, therefore I don't like doing it. So I chatted with a lot of, a lot of friends who had gone through the process. Many of them had kind of either come from VC or come from PE or, or come from some sort of world where the auction dynamic of fundraising was very, very clear, whereas to me it was zero clear. And so, and I definitely remember just kind of through a friend network, like reaching out to a few and them, you know, just being horrified that they didn't like think my vision was just going to be a unicorn overnight because that's how you feel as, as a young founder, right? And, you know, feeling a little bit scarred, scarred from it. But it's, uh, I don't know, I remember some of the, especially some of the more social dynamics, I, I literally didn't believe were true. Right. And so I kind of ignored them just on like, I'm sorry, you know. Dan, your, your hypothesis is just too preposterous to be believable. And, you know, you walk through and you start to just see like all of the incredible insights and in what they were telling me. And it certainly does operate in a very counterintuitive way to an outside observer. Let me pause you right there just because you kind of glazed over a few things I think are worth pointing out. And we talked a little bit about your background, but successful entrepreneur, MBA from Harvard Business School, a lot of experience. And yet what you were telling me was as you were thinking about starting to raise money, you had this feeling like, wow, it's a black box, right? You, you don't really understand it. And then what I think you were saying was the next layer of trying to shed some light on this black box was talking to people that had been there before. And the first things that you heard from these people, you couldn't believe that it was true. So if there are one or two very specific instances of things that you heard that you remember, it would be, I'd love to hear that. Yeah, sure. So, so remember, all of my experience had been on the auto finance company we called First Help Financial. And, and all we'd done is try to raise debt, right? And, and uh, revolving debt facilities and all these things that are a lot more complicated, but it's a very sober experience. Like a bank doesn't care about deal competition. They don't care about terms. They just care that they have enough asset protection in order to give you a loan. That's it. Yeah. And so it's a very sobering experience. So it's a sprint to achieve the minimum threshold of, of approvability. Once you get to that minimum threshold, typically everyone wants to do it. It's a completely sober, there's no social dynamics to it. There's no auction dynamics. It's just much, much more straightforward process. And so that was all my background. I would say that the first thing that I was just kind of mystified by was like the impact of introductions. It makes sense now, but at the time, I was like, it's unthinkable that literally, I don't know, fancy education, what I think is an incredible business, great traction, you know, millions has been invested personally by the founder. It, it was unthinkable that the power of the introduction could in some way completely usurp all of those awesome positive trends. Yeah. Just because at the other end, it's now having gone through it a bunch of times, you don't understand kind of the funnel dynamics of the VC, all right? And that, you know, funnel's all about taking tons and tons of leads in a very efficient filtration system. So at the end of the, at the, end of the funnel, you've got a few good deals that are really profitable come, come out the other end. And the fact that I had no idea on the other end, was like, that's too preposterous. I can't imagine that, like, just because an LP introduces me versus like our shared accountant that this guy would have or gal would have any different perception. It does seem so ridiculous, especially with people that feel like they have the background that should be trusted, that something as simple as a different introduction could literally color the perspective and the evaluation of an investor's evaluation of a founder. But it's totally true. And the things that I tell people are, there's just not a lot of time and not a lot of data in order to make the right calls. And so they're looking for the biggest shortcuts into figuring out, is there something here? Is there something worth spending time on? So love that you pointed that out. Yeah, it's the exact same thing as any sales funnel. Yeah, 
Yeah. Right. At the end of the day, like it, with uh, with us, it's that we're always just trying to understand kind of probability of close, potential money that we can make off of this market fit within within our product portfolio, et cetera. And if we have a better filtration me- mechanism that can automate those things and minimize the work done, we'll do it as well. Right. So I think it's just the human nature of managing a funnel. Any other ones that come to mind? Oh yeah. So I think the one that's much more impactful that I honestly think you have to go through it once, hopefully successfully, to really understand it, but is creating competitive dynamics in a deal was one that also I hadn't, I understood it at a very conceptual level, but I certainly had not internalized the importance of that, right? Because at the end of the day, right, it's like, I love I love our VCs, they're, they're all awesome, I have incredibly good things to say, to say about all of them, but like, at the end of the day, I, I'm selling a good that I want to sell for the highest price, and they're buying a good that they want to buy for the lowest price. And the only way to force hand is your BATNA, right? Like, what is your best alternative? Your, your VC wants to look at what is your best alternative and put one more incremental dollar value on top of that. And that's how they're going to price right. it. So your job is to get your pet as high as possible to have the best negotiating leverage possible when you actually get to the, you know, get to offers, get to term sheets, et cetera. You know, I think the last thing or the very specific thing I would point out about that, which is just... To your point, you kind of have to see it done badly one time to be like, oh my gosh, like I need to spend time on actually setting it up in the system because you know, the small correction I'd make is it's almost not even your best alternative. It's the perception of the best alternative, right? Because you might not even have the best alternative in hand. So um, I wanted to quickly transition to something else as, as you think about you know, remembering going to raise money, which is actually just asking you what it was like being a South American startup and wanting to raise money. So there are obviously local VCs, and I think you have some of those on your cap table now, but your history has been actually getting leads or getting the majority of your money outside of South America. It's an interesting conversation because the startup world, the investing world is going very global right now. So certainly when we were getting started back in like 14, 15, there were four or five very reputable funds. And obviously, as you can imagine, they would focus on like seed and series A. And then they would basically ignore series B because their intuition was that at series B, where you're now validating you know, a 20 plus million dollar raise, you should go to the Americans who have more money and lower cost of the capital. And that's true. And, and also, they would give you terms dramatically worse, like half the multiples that, that the Americans would give you. And a lot of them, certainly at the beginning, I think lots have changed since then, but like at the beginning, they're really just creating this very profitable bridging mechanism to get you to raise U.S. money as soon as possible. Yeah. Even today, so nowadays there's a few South American firms that have over a billion of assets under management. It's still the same strategy, right? Because at the end of the day, they still, even the best brands still have lower, smaller brands than SoftBank, Tiger, Andreessen of the world. And obviously the brand still does, does have a lot of really positive signaling effects that are really impactful for startups. Um, and so they still really focus on that seed and, seed and series A. To me, I think being an American certainly helped me bridge that gap a little bit better. Just because it's, I have more friends in common. I, I naturally had a bigger network yeah. through, I don't know, things like business school. Um, and so I was able to bridge that gap and have an American firm lead our Series A, which was great. But that is pretty uncommon up until very, very recently. And typically, the, the ones you see raise American Series A's are either very big Series A's or are companies that have gone through YC or something like that. So they've already had tons of exposures to the U.S. market. Well, let's let's spend a little bit more time on that. At the time when you raised from Fifth Wall, an amazing firm in L.A., that was 2019. I mean, you really threaded the needle in terms of raising right before the pandemic. So some of those dynamics are going to be different. But how were you able to get it done? Because you would have had to spend a ton of time in the United States in person. But if you were able to, if you were able to diagnose your success there, I mean, you talked a little bit about being an American, but what you know, if you were to give yourself a postmortem and, and extract the things that helped make you successful, what was it about being a South American firm and and you in particular that you think allowed you to actually get it over the finish line? First thing is that look, you have to take a lot of swings, right? And there's obviously the vast majority are going to be misses. And you have to align them to understand that you can manage the deal process pretty effectively. So, I mean, that's the first one is that I didn't do that very effectively. I just had, it was just a a series of errors, but we had one really awesome one hit that we're really excited by. Uh, Luckily, we did have a little bit of deal competition um, at the end there, which was positive for us. 
But look, at the end of the day, the, the connection kind of one-on-one is that I was looking for someone to say, at the time, IoT was not nearly as hyped up as it is today, right? So even three years later, with guys like Samsara and Keep Trucking and Platform Science and Analytics and all these like incredibly massive unicorn type companies who are raising tons of money, super validated the model. And so we're very lucky that the partner at Fifth Wall, uh, Andre Mikulovsky, who's also one of who's also one of our board members, he had seen he had invested in telematics in his past like private equity world, and he totally understood it. He understood the go to market. Mm-hmm. He understood the technology. He saw just the incredible blue ocean that like Latin America is the same size as the United States from a logistics standpoint, and it is just blue ocean city. And so he's just like. Mm-hmm. That narrative completely resonates with me. Like it's the same narrative we had way back when in the private equity space, et cetera. And so I think there was certainly serendipity in it. But look, it's it's serendipity is just a is a measure of, of how many repetitions you get. And so I think it was just about repetitions and hitting on something that really resonated with people. Certainly before our technology became more mainstream. Well, a couple of things I, I just I really appreciated your level of honesty around the number of mistakes you made Um, because if you go to Crunchbase and you type in Copley and you Google a little bit about Copley it's like won the 2016 HBS new venture competition 10 million dollars from fifth wall and then we'll talk about 30 million dollars from SoftBank it's it looks like you were walking on water for the last five years and so some of that vulnerability and honesty around yeah, we really effed up. Like, I, you know, there was some serendipity in there, but found something is just, I think, really refreshing to hear something that you know, I always love hearing. And the thing that I am surprised at or somewhat surprised at, but it makes sense now, is I thought there was going to be something very specific about South America or something that you were going to tell me that I was like, oh, that's what, and that's what a founder coming from a country outside the U.S. needs to do a little bit differently. And touch these things here, cross these wires. But it turns out the story you're telling is the same story everyone goes out who is successful at, which is finding a great story, being very specific about that story, and then going to find the person that really understands that story, right? So yours happened to be very specific around IoT. I don't know how much um, you know your lead investor from Fifth Wall knew about South America, but you know it's the same numbers game. There's a slight additional complication of being in South America, but there must have been something about the investor from Fifth Wall that made him amenable to taking a bet in South America. It really is about a numbers game with a very specific story and finding the person that thinks like you. I think there's some work you can do to make sure that other investors like get up to speed and, and see your vision. But you know, when you land on the one that understands it, you know, interesting things can happen. To, to build on that point a little bit, it's that, I mean, so an additional complexity of Latin America is that 95% of VCs don't do international. So you have a very, very small pool to pick from. And then it's really important, like the narrative is of the utmost importance, right? And just like they need to believe like the destination that you've defined, is that an attractive destination? First and foremost, right? So it's like that vision, is that an attractive vision? And then is it a believable vision? Is it a vision that we want aligned financially, culturally, from a narrative from the VC standpoint? And then their evaluation is saying, well, well, show me the pathway to get to that destination. And they have to have conviction around every point of breakage on that pathway to that destination. And that's basically what they're going through. And that point of breakage would be like, I don't believe Parker is capable of getting there. I don't think he can hire a team. I think the technology is going to crap out. I think they'll run into a regulatory disaster. I don't think they'll be able to raise a Series B. I think competition will come up and bite them in the ass, et cetera. And they're basically just saying, again, coming back to like, you are just managing a yield loss funnel. And they're just trying to say, this time, the yield loss funnel is saying, starting position is right this very moment. End position is a beautiful vision. I need to understand, like, what are all the different holes that they can fall into? And what is kind of some sort of probability of them falling into the holes? I have conviction that all of those things are, are surmountable problems. And so it's, it's the, just the absolute importance of having a believable destination and a very clear journey of how you're going to get there uh, is the most important thing. <laughs> when we come back, Parker explains why he thinks the Series B game is all about your data room. Thank you.
I spend most of my days one-on-one -on -one with entrepreneurs, helping them understand strategies that make a difference in fundraising. Some things vary from founder to founder because not everyone's story is the same. One thing I'm super consistent about, no matter who the founder, is making sure they send their decks and materials using a document sharing tool. And for that, I always recommend DocSend. DocSend lets you know what's happening with your deck after you send it along with real-time analytics and notifications. Did the VCs actually open it? What slides did they spend the most time on? And if you think it got shared with the wrong people, or maybe you made a mistake and sent it too quickly, DocSend lets you control access and make updates to content even after sending. Sign up for a free two-week trial at docsend.com funded. That's D-O-C-S-E-N-D.com funded. Okay, back to the show. Your Series A is so much about your vision, but your Series B is all about how well you've been executing that vision, improving that through data. Parker figured that out and a bunch of new elements of the process brought on by a post-COVID world. At the very beginning, like our Series A, we had revenue and we were certainly marked to revenue multiples and stuff like that. But it's, you know, it's probably 90% vision, 10% reality. Whereas kind of the Series B moves to maybe a 50-50 split. And then as you go on, it's, it's really just tell me your reality and let's see how much white space still, still sits in front of you. And so your narrative certainly adjusts for that, right? Some of it is just saying why what you've built is so foundational for future narrative. Series A is just narrative and your foundation is me, right? And tiny little things that we have that are, that are minimally functional. The COVID dynamic, I actually love the COVID dynamic. So I remember during the Series A, man, it's obviously a super long flight to get to San Francisco. It's just being first time and not having any seed, hadn't done YC. My network was business school kids and just random connections and just me just hustling. And we were lucky to get like one pitch in a day. And then VCs would cancel and you're taking Ubers from the city down to like Mountain View, or wherever they might be placed, and you're just losing yeah. everything. You're getting no work done because you're just grabbing Starbucks internet, and it's just complete chaos, right? And so I remember I spent two weeks with my co-founder, and we had, I don't know, maybe maybe eight pitches. It was just, it was just terrible because oh. it's just so hard to get on the schedule, so hard to physically get there, et cetera. And then it's also draining. You know, you're not in the best state of mind when you show up. Like, yeah. it was just, I, remember, I just have nothing but bad things to say about the, about the physical process. Obviously, the Zoom dynamic changes dramatically, right? So I remember one day I had nine pitches in a single day. Wow. Uh, it's much easier to get on people's calendars, right, just because there's no switching costs at all. You just kind of jump from one Zoom to the next. I thought that was incredible. It was much easier to get feedback on pitches, right? So I would always have my co-founder right there in the pitch because VCs do not give you clear feedback, right? You know, like uh, best case scenario, they're going to be like, here's what we liked, here's what we didn't like. But typically, they're just going to be like, this was awesome. Let's stay in contact, right? With just that yeah. just incredibly <laughs> euphemistic note, right? That so many yeah. people get. And so having my co-founder out there and having it be so repetitive and having him sitting there and afterwards you can do a recap is was really important. When you when you're sitting there, I mean you're just in this like isolation booth and it's a mostly a one-way, right? You kind of give this this one-way pitch to another person, they sit there and digest, you're trying to read social cues, you're trying to read anything they give back to, etc. But I mean, at best case scenario, you're getting like 20% through just kind of that passive feedback that you're actually getting, ingesting, and using to improve the pitch. So having a co-founder there was 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 really awesome, and I think super necessary. Um, so really big dynamic that changed during this thing where you have higher velocity, greater access to the VCs. So what you saw historically is you saw that look. It, let, let me just loosely define the different stages of fundraising. You have first off, you have to ask, get someone to try to make an intro. That's that's a point of breakage. The, that VC can answer yes or no. Great, you're now on the VC's books. After you make a pitch, typically the best outcome is, hey, do you have a data room? We'd love to dive right in. Right there on the call, they ask for that. Next would be, hey, let's stay. You know, and a no would be like, let's stay in touch. A medium would like data room two days later. But anyway, assuming that that is then a conversion, it would get to the data room. And the only next step after a data room, other than kind of um, any sort of questions or Q&A they might have, is a term sheet. And what you find is during the Series A, it was much harder to get to data room. So basically, the pitch to data room conversion was low, right? Because these VCs, like, 
they have to say of of their data rooms, they have to give a high, high a high percentage of data rooms into term sheets just to use their time. It's much harder to get pitches in the door just because you you've lower bandwidth. In the COVID area era, they were much quicker to go into the data room because they've hired like an army of analysts now because they've so many pitches coming in. They want to see almost everything. But the the data room to term sheet conversion has never been lower. So pre-COVID, the complexity is getting to data room. Post-COVID, the complexity is getting to term sheet. Hmm. And, and we saw very very similar dynamics to that. It's like people were much more willing to jump into a data room, but less willing to throw a term sheet out quickly, which was the opposite of our experience in the end. Interesting. You're an incredibly technical founder and very steeped in sales processes, obviously, and, and, and you sort of color the uh, your views on fundraising with, with that lens. Um, and it's fascinating to hear you describe it because you know, I obviously believe that fundraising is a is a solvable problem, is a process that you can run. But hearing that a level of rigor is mind-blowing, honestly. I wanted to hear a little bit more about the emotional side of the Series B. It sounds like you learned a lot between Series A and Series B, probably both your fundraising chops and sales chops. So it kind of all colored how you actually executed the Series B. Does this mean, you know, zero stress, super easy the second time around? Uh, <laughs> how did it feel going through it? <laughs> Man, quite quite the opposite. So l- let me just first kind of jump over kind of mistakes we made during the A that we didn't make during the B. Still lots of mistakes were made. Uh, so the first massive mistake is we did not have our data room ready when we started pitching. So I didn't, no one had explained to me that like the conversion from pitch is data room. And so if that guy's like, this is awesome, do you have the data room open? And you say, yeah, give me two to three weeks. That guy's forgotten your first name in two to three weeks, right? Because this is just like such a, you know, drinking from the fire hose type situation for almost every VC, especially nowadays. And so that was a huge mistake is that we didn't have the data room ready. And so we had a bunch of funds that just kind of lost, just cooled off. We kind of got back in contact and the funnel was already full again. And then the second is that this time we overinvest in the data room, understanding that dynamic, that your data room should be as glistening as your original deck. It should be as glistening as your pitch because it's so important. Remember, the data room term sheet conversion has never been lower. And the data room that answers the questions in an easy way tells the narrative in an easy way. It's supposed to like, oh, yeah, here's like a, a blind HubSpot funnel data dump in Excel. <laughs> Good luck. That, that's like a quick pass, right? And so... That, that was one really big thing that we did, apart from basic timing things, right? Trying to get everyone on the same page. Yeah. But yeah, on, on the Series B, first off, a Series B in Brazil is still really hard. Why? So like I said before, is local funds don't want to do a B because they're like, you know, there's moral hazard here, right? If Why are you coming to us? Because the, the foreigners have better brands and more money, et cetera. If yeah. you're coming to us, it means they've already <laughs> rejected you. If they've already rejected you, why, why would we accept you, right? There's all this like insanely circular signaling. Which is, by the way, the, the social dynamics of VC overall, not just South America, but completely, I get it. Completely. Like yeah. when, you were, when you were dealing in systems with incomplete information, it, the, the social dynamics just fill that information gap, right? And that's exactly what you see. 100%. And so the Series B is very hard because... Uh, so there's first that dynamic that locals don't want to lead Series Bs because of the potential negative, negative signaling. You've already pitched the United States. In the United States, something we really saw is that funds have grown massively. And so today, what you find is Brazil's becoming, Latin America's becoming hotter and hotter. But you typically find is that funds want to put big checks into international, right? Because they're like, look, we get growth, right? Growing Kobe versus growing Samsara in the United States, pretty similar. But probably the first two years of Kobe, what our challenges were versus Sam Starr's first two years are probably dramatically different. And we don't understand that. We're not Brazilian. We've maybe been there a few times, et cetera. And so first off, if them saying you have to be a growth mode, and then the second that the front, the rounds have gotten bigger, they're typically looking at like, honestly, the sweet spot's like 50 to 80 for what a US VC would want to lead for like a BCD, et cetera, in Brazil. So we, we, we were under that. We started asking for, for a smaller sum than the 35 million that we ended up raising. Obviously, we were able to manage the process well and push that check size and, and terms up a bit, which was probably one of the successful parts of what we put together. But we kind of fell into this gap. We're too small for the Americans. We're too big for the Brazilians. Where do we go? And so it was either we certainly had discussions of doing co-leads, which are an increasingly popular thing, which has positive and negative signaling built into it. 
but it certainly it, it increases the buying power of some smaller funds. So we had some of those term sheets. You, the founder, you have to cobble those together. The VC doesn't pop out of nowhere. There's like an insane love hate yeah. between VCs, and these guys aren't like trying to pat each other in the back pulling deals because they're trying to kick each other at the same time. And so the co-lead can be a really good option if you're trying to get a bigger round done with smaller funds. And then for the bigger funds, you really have to show that, look, for the Series C, for us, it was the next round. This round's going to be hot, right? We have an incredible market. We, our grow-to-market is, is bumping. There's very few things out there that, that can be right. This is kind of getting back to the, the, the journey that connects the, the outcome to the, to the reality. That has to be very, very tight. And you have to show them how you can deploy more and more capital. Like to us, $35 million SoftBank is not meaningful, right? They have to be deploying yeah. hundreds of millions and then have an outcome that, that will support all that. And so you have to build that narrative around to get some of these guys to come down market. Remember, too, is they'll only come down market if they see it's unclear if we'll be able to participate in the scene. So it's guaranteeing that they've prorated rights of 15, 20% or however much of their company that they bought. That can be extended forward. Yeah. So I'd say those are the big dynamics that, that change for us. And then, like I said, the Latin America part is that there, there are gaps in just the, the, let's just say, VC stack of check sizes. Sure. And you need to be very smart about how you navigate. I've seen some really, really good businesses that are super healthy kind of just get get whacked from a cap table standpoint because they fit in. They just jumped into that, you know, the Bermuda Triangle of the Series B of Latin America. So you obviously got to a great outcome. Do you remember the most stressful time of, of that fundraise? So uh, to be honest, I, I find that you kind of need to be a little zen. I find all of it, like yeah. just getting really comfortable at knowing it's a numbers game, kind of getting over that because, I mean, look, uh, we we had a few we had a few funds that we either had a term sheet for the Series A, or we were like centimeters away from from having a term sheet. They were like quick nose during the B, and we're like, oh my god, everything's gotten better. What's what's happening? Like what's going on, etc. Mm, yeah. Just because look, a lot of it is you have to manage two things. You have to manage process, and you have to narrative. Narrative is marketing, process is sales yeah. process. And for both of those things. There's a lot of reading between the lines of kind of your confidence, your ability to pitch, your, your, the speed with, with which you're like diving into your own data stream in your mind and pulling yep. out metrics in a really dynamic and fluid way. And so the theatrical part is really important. Yeah. Right. And just being on, being performance and kind of getting like if you want a really bad pitch and you've got four more that day, you need some sort of way, right? Go walk the dog, take a walk, smoke a cigarette, whatever it is your vice, you, you got to do it just because it's performance time and, uh, and have to get through that. <laughs> I know. I love that you pointed something out around your own levels of stress, one. Um, so your ability to control that is really important. And, and, and you talked about something that I think could be really destructive to someone's confidence that I think you were able to defend against, which was you, know, you had these funds that that felt like teed up for you, right? Like they were really interested, you know, they seemed to be better for the B anyways. And when you talk to them, you probably went in there being like, oh, this is going to be great. And when they were quick nose, that feels like a punch to the stomach, right? Like that is like, uh, take the wind out of your sail. Brutal, right? Especially you probably had them early on because you thought they would be good. But when those no's come in, like this is what I tell founders a lot is like, those no's aren't going to feel good. And you have to figure out a way to be able to not brush those off and move on. One of the ways you do it though, is by creating a process that kind of doesn't let you stew on one, one miss. You know, if you were doing one pitch a day for, <laughs> or one pitch and then two days of gap time where someone passes, that's going to feel real bad for two days. But when you have eight pitches in a day, it's like, man, that did feel bad, but look like giddy up. Like we have seven others to go. They're lost. We're going to keep going. So Great job setting up that process and kind of finding your Zen place for fundraising. Yeah, the, having someone kind of there on the pitches, even if they're not like participatory in the pitches, is important just because they can, you know, just like the emotional backlog that, that it creates, they can help load balance of just kind of like what is actually a real positive signal that you should process and get better at and what is just you overthinking things, et cetera. And so having that person by, by your side who can kind of cut through a lot, that's really important. Do you remember where you were when you heard or when SoftBank reached out saying, we want to lead this round? Do you, do you remember that? Yeah, I mean, completely. It's, um, I mean, so this is shocking. I was in the second bedroom in my home that is now a home office. They had said, hey, Parker, can you chat at, at 6 p.m.? And it was a Friday and I was like, sure. I'm like, oh, fuck, man. Like, it's either like, hey, we went really far in the process and we really love you guys yeah. and we really think we'll lead the Series C, but 
we got to say no, but guys really stay in touch, send us data. Like, let's right. really do the things that most people say they don't do, right? It's either that, I, and I thought that was the more likely one, or it was, it was hey, let's do some of this a term sheet. And it's quite funny because uh, the guy who's leading our deal is a junior partner. There's three main partners. There's uh, Carlos, Paulo, and Shu, who lead the, the $10 billion Latin American uh, soft bank fund. And there's, a, there's a junior partner named Matt. And it was funny because uh, Matt and Shu, very senior, uh, kind of sent that ma- message, et cetera. And then at the last second, I had to move my chat with Matt back an hour. But Shu didn't know that. And so Shu sent me a text at like 6.10, assuming that the act had been done, just be like, dude, welcome, congrats, welcome to the family, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and so he totally like, ruined what? the surprise. Like Shu oh, just kind of like completely jumped the gun. So it ruined the surprise, but obviously it was, it was really great. I remember just jumping up and down with um, with you know, with the fiance. Immediately called Rodrigo, my co-founder. It was, it was incredible to like come over, and you know, we obviously just had like kind of a mix of celebration and retrospection, right? Just being like, you know, look how far we've come, look how much we have to do, and also let's like enjoy this moment. When we come back, my producer interviews me about the interview. Early on at my last company, we had the chance to sell into a large public company, but ran into a wall. They wouldn't work with us unless we were SOC 2 certified. We really tried for weeks to get something done. We were Googling how to get SOC 2 certified and interviewing expensive consultants. But in the end, we abandoned the deal because it was too distracting. So when I learned about Vanta, a company that was just backed by Sequoia, used by hundreds of SaaS startups to get SOC 2 certified, I was so annoyed. I mean, I really wish they had been around back then. Vanta makes it super easy to get a variety of certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, the certification we needed to get, and HIPAA. They integrate with your cloud provider and other tools you already use to automate the super complex and time-consuming process of preparing for an audit. Anyway, if you'd like to drop a months-long process down to weeks like I would have back then and actually sign those major contracts, you should check out Vanta. Also, I'm really happy to share that listeners of Funded get hooked up. You all can get $1,000 off your service by going to vanta.com slash funded. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash funded. Okay, back to the show. Hey, Liv. Hi. Um, okay, so that interview was rather straight-laced. It was all business. But I happen to know something, which is that you and Parker are like tight. Yeah, I guess reality is Parker is my best friend. He and I met in business school, uh, happened to be in the same class, same section. Um, and then just like we're tight. In fact, I'm I'm the best man at his wedding <laughs> in, oh, uh, in, in just a, a little under two months from now. So, oh, my um, gosh. Yeah, it, it is. A, there, there's a little bit of background there. Do you remember first meeting him? In business school <laughs> yeah it's funny like maybe some of this will go into my speech but um <laughs> he, he has said that he <laughs> he noticed like I used to go to the class at business school um, I used to skateboard to class <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, and, you know and and business school is like a very straight laced yeah or can be a very straight laced place like people are coming from banks and consulting firms and like wearing up. suits and stuff uh yeah i mean you know it was certainly polos uh and i would roll okay. up in like a t-shirt and like skateboard to class and he he says i remember seeing you come in and be like who is this guy like what wh- how cool does he think <laughs> he is or something like that um but yeah i mean uh early on i think we went on a fun trip together that like ended up being a reason we, we hung out quite a bit. But funny enough, the trip that we got close on was we went to Brazil oh. our first year of school together. Um, was that his yeah. first time in Brazil? Do you know? I think it was his first time in Brazil. So like the, the ah. background is that his first company happened to have a large portion of its customers who were uh, Brazilian immigrants. And oh. so he even had employees that were Brazilian and was always fascinated with the culture, started studying wow. the language. And then when we went down, you know, had such a fascination for the country and the people and the opportunity yeah. down there that he was just so gung-ho about starting a business down there uh, yeah. out of business school. Yeah. Do you remember when you were in Brazil? Like, did he talk about, I think I want to live here? Like, did he say stuff like that? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, there's definitely comments about just how exciting it was to be in a different country that was much more adventurous. He's always been a really like rigorous business mind, and and would talk about things like you know all the opportunities are already done in the states. Like it's all mm. it's all priced in, and like you know that term of like all the opportunities priced in the United States. Whereas if you go abroad and you go to places like Brazil. There's so much opportunity. There's so much upside here. So, um, yeah, I definitely remember him just being fascinated with the country and the opportunity from day one. And did that make you think differently about VC at all? Because I know most of your work, I mean, I don't know your whole resume, but I think has been domestic. Um, So did being so close to someone who has like international ambitions or ambitions abroad, did that make you rethink, I don't know, opportunity or... Yeah, where opportunity lives. A hundred percent. Yeah, I didn't expect the conversation to go here, but yeah, that was our first trip to Brazil was over New Year's of the first school year, and in the summer between years in business school, you you take an internship. He went to Brazil, uh-huh. and I went to China. I went to Shanghai, oh, um, cool. thinking, hey, you know, I I really took to heart what Parker was saying, and was and I I agreed with it. I was oh, like, wow. there would be way more opportunity if I could land abroad and and capture a bunch of upside. I I definitely thought about it. I think if I were to describe why I came back to the States is that Parker has a super high risk tolerance and Ah, is incredibly adventurous and like landed in Brazil, didn't know the language and was was like, yep, I'm just going to make this work. Whereas I landed in China and I'm I'm Taiwanese and I speak really bad Chinese. Mm, Okay. (laughs) When I I got there, like my Chinese was bad and they weren't like excited about it. Like I thought they would be, I thought they would be like, oh my God, look at this. Look at this American born Chinese. Like he's trying. And instead it was like, we all speak English and your Chinese is terrible. You're going to have to work really hard to actually make it here. And I think I came away from that summer being like, Uh, I don't know if I have this in me and went back to the States and eventually became a venture capitalist. Whereas Brazil was Brazil for Barker. I think over the summer is like, man, I'm really bad at Portuguese and this is kind of hard, but he's like, I'm going to run towards the difficulty. I'm going to run towards the opportunity. So that's why he's, he's doing what he's doing. That's cool. That's really cool that he rubbed off on you. Question though. What do you mean when you say Parker said that all the opportunity in the U.S. is like, quote, priced out or whatever. What what does that mean? And why do you think there is more opportunity abroad, like in places like China or Brazil? The, the simplest way to think about that concept of like all of the opportunity is priced in is the United States in a lot of ways is on the forefront of a lot of innovation. And so we've done things like push e-commerce forward. We, we have done things like put telematics into cars in the United States. That's the space that Parker's in. Mm-hmm. So everything is expensive. Like you can't come in and be like, I'm trying something new and people go, oh, wow. Like, you know, there's so much upside here. I want to invest. It's like, no, that's all done before. Whereas in in Brazil and China and Pakistan and all these like mm-hmm. up and coming startup opportunity zones, you know, you can go there and be like, wow, like the infrastructure isn't here yet. Like, Mm-hmm. You know, they haven't built out great fintech. They haven't built out great Internet of Things technologies and, and infrastructure. And so if I go there, I can be the first to do that business mm. and capture all this upside that hasn't been, quote unquote, like priced into the country or or the space. Interesting. So one question. So Parker ended up getting investors who were both in America and in Brazil, right? That's correct. So in both cases, in the Series A, he had a firm called Fifth Wall Ventures, which is based out of Los Angeles, the uh-huh. lead the round. And it's like fancy, right? I Googled it. Very fancy. Very, yeah. very fancy. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, it, fairly new, a newish fund, but well-respected, pretty fancy. And, and then the Series B was SoftBank's international fund, which is mm-hmm. like a giant international fund, but oh, in both cases, okay. those leads took up the vast majority of the round, and then Parker um, squeezed in some Brazilian investors. Okay, gotcha. Okay, tell me about that international fund. So I know Parker said this statistic, which I'm sorry, Parker, I am skeptical of, 
Just like it's a very round. clean number. It's very round. Yeah. yeah. Very convenient. Exactly. <laughs> he said something like 95% of VCs don't do international, but you just told me about something called SoftBank or whatever. So it sounds like there are funds that do specialize in investing abroad. Yeah. So, I mean, I think what's what's fair to point out, and I do believe the 95% statistics is, is just something he, he dropped as hyperbole, but like directionally sound. So okay. especially especially given the timeline of his starting Kobley and raising the Series A. So it, it's interesting to talk to a founder who across the last two rounds straddled pre-COVID world right. versus post-COVID world. And, and I, what I would say is as recently as call it three years ago, certainly five years ago, um, most investing was done very locally to yeah. to where funds were. Um, and because a lot of funds were in San Francisco, San Francisco, then maybe New York and LA, mm-hmm. most of the biggest companies were centered in San Francisco. And right. it was really difficult for people to even imagine investing outside of those geographies, those city geographies, let alone mm-hmm. internationally outside of the United States. So yeah. what he's saying is very true. And I, I mean, I, I think the simplest way to describe this is, you know, you're, you're investing in the early stage and you just don't know what's going to happen. And so yeah. you need to feel comfortable with as much of the potential variables that will come your way as possible when you're putting this early stage capital risk. So if you find a fantastic entrepreneur named Olivia and she lives in San Francisco Mm -hmm. and her network is local, you can say a few things. You're like, well, I can diligence her. You know, she's Mm -hmm. worked in this city for the last five years. So it's -hmm. it's very easy for me to call five people and say like, hey, have Mm -hmm. you heard of this woman, Olivia? Um, It's easy for me to see what her experience looks like. It's easy for me to be like, mm-hmm. okay, I know the companies that she worked at and I know mm-hmm. they're credible and that makes sense to me that she would develop these skills. And then mm-hmm. it's really easy for me to be like, okay, and I know what her network likely is. So her ability to hire, her ability to hire is probably going to be great. Uh, and then yeah. understanding the local dynamics of how the business is going to run makes you believe like, okay, I can kind of see how this will work or it might pivot now you move outside the geographies you know and like i said move outside the city that you know and it becomes Mm -hmm. a little bit more difficult then you're like well i'm not really sure how this is going to happen then you move international and all of a sudden it's like different sets of laws you know completely different networks different um, venture capital firms and so all those new variables make it be like there certainly will be winners in international markets but the comfort level of investors going abroad historically has been quite low. Now, I think things are changing for a variety of reasons. One of those being post-COVID Zoom capabilities. Like Parker talked about this ability to meet founding teams and meet investors back to back to back super easily. So now if I do need to diligence Parker at Cobley, I can probably do a bunch of Zoom meetings to meet his former investors, some of the Mm -hmm. companies that he works with down in Brazil and that's more possible. Yeah. And then everyone is looking for upside opportunity now. Everyone's so excited about early stage investing that they are starting to take on more of this geography risk and this unknown by going to different countries. Like there's been a spate of uh of companies out of Pakistan that are are getting um, heavy amounts of funding because people are are sort of getting comfortable and excited about that geography. Mm. So um, certainly was, you know, the, the round number of 95%, um, was directionally accurate over the last few years. But I do think, especially in 2021, post COVID people are getting a little bit more comfortable with going outside the, the borders. To go back to your business school class, was Parker one of the only Americans who ended up doing something like this? Very few did what he did. I would say he definitely wasn't the only one. He, he definitely was yeah. not the only one because there there are a lot of easier opportunities, lower risk, lower reward opportunities in the United States for people graduating from business school. And I think uh, a lot of people yeah. took those. But I, I mean, I knew people that started fish farms in Mexico and started businesses in Spain and over in China and, and a couple in South America. So he, he's not the only one, but he is one of the more successful ones. Just so you know, fish farms are one of my biggest fears. 
it's actually my my biggest fear is being thrown into a fish farm anyway but that is cool that someone started fish farms in mexico i'm sure it's a great business there's a learning curve with everything and that includes languages but it turns out portuguese isn't that different from a boston accent let parker explain in rio they have very thick accents that Brazilians have mixed feelings on what they think about the Rio accent. Some people will be kind of like mean in a Boston, New York uh, rivalry dynamic and be like, oh, it sounds criminal. <laughs> Others will be like, it's super beautiful. It's similar to the Portuguese accent. It's very cool. So I- irrespective of, of where you fall on your opinion of the karaoke accent, it's very strong. So basically, I spent my business school summer inter- internship in Rio learning Portuguese from like zero. And obviously, my professor was Carioca, was from Rio. And so I remember I get to Sao Paulo with this terrible <laughs> Portuguese, but this like super thick Rio accent. And so the equivalent of like, you know, like a, a German guy coming over, he can't speak any English at all, but he's got like a wicked hot Boston accent, but all of his English <laughs> is horrible. And so people would tease me to this day. They'd be like, ah, which is like the, the loopy way of, of pronouncing my name in the Rio accent. Love it. So that was a big one. That, pe- people still tease me about this to this day. And it's like an awesome icebreaker anytime I meet, especially a business person from Rio. Thanks so much for listening. There are tons of insights that each founder we cover on Funded has around startups, fundraising, and life. And we don't have time to cover it all. Especially in this episode where we touched on things like data room setup, we could have talked for hours. Instead, we put those things into our insights back. If you'd like to hear a bit about Parker's amazing data room and what a great data room looks like, grab that at fundedpod.com slash If you're looking for more insights, strategies, and support around fundraising, here are a few things you should do. Definitely subscribe to our weekly newsletter at fundedpod.com slash newsletter. And find me on social. I'm at J-A-Y-Y-E-H, that's J-A-Y-Y-E-H, on almost every platform. I respond to newsletter replies and DMs, so hit me up. This episode was produced by Olivia Reingold. Hi. Thanks also to John O'Lee from Adamant Ventures. Hello, friends. And thanks to Parker for showing us that we can all learn foreign languages like Portuguese and foreign processes like fundraising. Case in point. Cara, onde fica o banheiro? As always, one last thanks to our sponsor, DocSend, the most trusted document sharing platform.